Hey guys, welcome to The View from the Front. My name is Stan and this is the August 10th edition. Today we are talking about several topics that I think will interest you. We've been exploring last week what exactly is happening with the Ukrainian offensive. We talked about four different possibilities last week and I said during that episode, hey, we really don't know the answer yet. This week in this episode, there's been some new information that's come out that I want to cover. I think you'll find this new information really interesting, to say the least. I'll also talk about the Ukraine war from a strategic level some, because that's really important. And then I'll flip it, and we'll take a look at the exact same thing from the Russian side or perspective. That's obviously very important as well. We'll also talk about an incident that happened between China and the Philippines, and then we'll move to our own military. There's several things happening there I want to talk about. In fact, there are three really important things that I've got in this episode that's happening in regards to our military, and this includes a deployment of Marines off the coast of Iran. This is something you definitely need to hear about. And then finally, at the end, we'll cover some motivation and wisdom as always, and I'll do my best to make sure we have timestamps throughout so you can jump to certain sections or tell your friends about parts they really need to listen to. If you are new to the show, let me say as background that I'm a proud moderate and that I covered the news for more than 10 years as a journalist. Before that, I served four years in the Marine Corps on active duty and two years in the reserve, all of that time in the infantry. And yes, that does matter. Because for my fellow infantry and spec ops folks out there, we know that we've been more cold, more wet, more hungry, and more wronged than just about any other MOS out there. But I'm getting off topic here. In this show, The View from the Front, I primarily do three things every week. First, I work to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world while also covering hotspots and foreign policy news that could affect our country. Secondly, I attempt to unite us and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. Our division is our country's greatest threat, and I firmly believe two things. Most Americans are good, and more unites us than divides us. Finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I want to help encourage you and lift you up. Life is certainly hard, and each one of us needs all the motivation and encouragement and wisdom that we can possibly get. Thanks again for joining us. I really hope you get something from the show. As I said earlier, we're going to begin the news section by talking about what exactly is happening with the Ukrainian offensive. Last week, I threw out four possibilities, including could there be a feint? What exactly is happening? Are they attacking in a different direction? I said then, hey, no one really knows. Again, this week, some new information has come out, and I definitely want to cover that. Now, the first thing that I wanted to dig into just a bit was just an incredible article that was on a is actually written by a community contributor on the Daily Coast website. I'll put a link in, of that article into the source notes, but I want to just cover some broadly at least what this community member brought up and the it's honestly a lot of analysts have talked about this article. It's definitely raised some uh, eyebrows and and gotten people talking and the thrust of it is this community member believes that, and of course this person's been following the war, it's an in-depth article with lots of details, so this person clearly knows what they're talking about. But the headline is, Ukraine's war of attrition can break Russia and it won't take years. So let's dig into it just a bit. Like I said, it's a great article. I've got a link in the Substack notes if you want to go read it, which I do highly recommend. But what the author talks about, it's written by a guy that goes by the name, uh, the handle at RO37. Again, RO37. And he brings up the question that I've wondered and talked privately with several people the past few weeks, which is, why does it seem like Ukraine is attacking everywhere, defending everywhere? And it's like, it just doesn't seem like Ukraine is concentrating its forces in one area of the battlefield. Now, obviously, this goes against the typical principles of maneuver warfare where you just drive through one point push through the barriers and get deep into the enemy's um, unprotected 
rear areas where you can attack, you know, further ammunition um, warehouses, etc., and really get into the parts, you know, make them move their artillery, make them start to retreat, if not flee. But Ukraine hasn't been doing that. And it just, it's been like a mystery for a lot of people because it just doesn't seem to make sense unless those defensive lines are just that difficult or impenetrable. So what exactly is going on? That's the big question. And so this author actually covers that. And he goes into what he believes. He sets it up with a little bit of background. He talks about that currently Ukraine is using... It gets really into the weeds of these different brigades, but that it's Ukraine's using five of the 14 crack brigades, which were trained by the West. And he talks about exactly where they're fighting, what exactly they're doing. And there's just a lot of areas that Ukraine is pushing forward in small amounts with small units. So it's like, why is it? Why are they doing this? Doesn't seem to make sense. And then he goes into the fact that if you mass a lot of armor or infantry, on the one hand, it gives you an offensive advantage, but on the other, those type of attacks can lead to heavy casualties, and they're risky. Now, Ukraine has tried a, at least one of those, maybe a couple, in the early part of the counteroffensive, and they did take some heavy casualties. The author of this article goes on to say that what he thinks Ukraine is doing is something they're doing on purpose, which is they are basically fighting a war of attrition, which if it was... If the casualties were one-to-one, then this would make no sense because Russia can clearly replace firepower and, or I'm sorry, Russia can replace manpower much easier than Ukraine. Russia is a bigger country. It's like three times the size and population. So obviously if it comes one-to-one on losses, Russia wins. But the author goes into that's actually not what's happening. And especially if you watch some of the videos and all. What is actually happening is that Ukraine is inflicting higher casualties on the Russians than the Russians are inflicting on the Ukrainians. And so what they're doing, the reason they're attacking in several areas in broad swaths of land is that they're pushing forward with small units. We talked about a couple of weeks ago how literally in some areas units, sapper units of like four men are going forward, probing for mines coming under fire and then they'll see a position and then you can take that position with counter fire. But the author goes into that by doing these attacks across multiple large areas, what's actually happening is it's forcing the the Russian forces to respond. And when they're doing so, especially when they're firing artillery, Ukraine does have an advantage with much better counter battery radar. And they obviously have long-range Time Mars, which are those multiple-launch rocket systems. And so they've been slowly but surely picking off Russian artillery. I've talked about this for the past couple of months. Couple of months. So Russia went into this with almost like a 10-to-1 edge. But Ukraine has, as I've talked about so many times, they have really been hitting some of these self-propelled artillery units that Russia has. So Russia's been losing very valuable material. Also, Russia's been increasingly losing very valuable Russian tanks. And th- these were modern versions that they had. A few T-90s, not too many of those, but mostly um, the T-80s, the T-72s. But what they're having to replace them with are much older tanks. They go all the way back to like T-55s. And these are almost, honestly, not even very effective on a modern battlefield. But Russia cannot replace their tanks' st- t- stockpiles with more modern versions, partly because of all the sanctions that are in place. They're having problems getting optics and things that modern tanks need. So Russia's capability is decreasing, while Ukraine's is basically staying the same, if not improving, because they are getting Western NATO-backed equipment, which is highly superior, and it also helps protect the crew, even if you were to damage some of these tanks. So His point is, what Ukraine is doing is they are purposefully taking their time, avoiding major dangerous assaults by large units, which are risky and could lead to high loss of life, and instead they are attacking across broad fronts, and they are slowly but surely wearing down 
the Russians. He makes the argument that in World War II, during the invasion of Normandy, that for almost two months, there was very little um, advance by allies against the German forces in Normandy. But they kept fighting attritional battles, and they eventually wore down their ability to exist. And then as gaps opened up in the defenses, the Allied armies began to push through, and suddenly it looked a lot easier. He believes that's what happens. He goes into some of the numbers and gets really into the stats on artillery losses that the Russians are going through and how they're also their rail lines and some of the bridge attacks that we've talked about. These things are starting to slowly but surely starve the Russian army of ammunition, supplies, new equipment. And so he, he makes the argument that these gaps will begin to emerge and that you will see some success from this attritional warfare. Again, it's a great piece. I've got a link to it in the Substack notes. Definitely take a look at that. Now, the second bit of new information that emerged since last week comes from the New York Times. And in fact, a listener named David shared this article with me. It's a free link because he sent the uh, free link. So you can read that from the source notes. But the article from the New York Times is titled, It's Not a Sprint, Ukraine's Marines Insist It's a Marathon. So the article goes into depth about, and, and let me say, the Ukraine allowed some New York Times reporters to embed in units. Now, there hasn't been a lot of open reporting on exactly what is happening. So they allowed some uh, New York Times reporters to embed with these units, and the article was published somewhat after the fact, obviously, for operational security reasons. But the reporters saw some things that I haven't seen in other articles. And some, some points that I think Ukraine has, for its own protection in the past, kept mostly confidential, but since then is starting to share a bit more. The first thing that emerges from this article is that in the initial counteroffensive stages, one of the Marine Brigades, one of their commanders admits that they did suffer heavy losses and that some of the newer troops were almost shocked by the Russian defenses, how good the artillery was, and that the Russians had fought very well. And in fact, one of the uh, Ukrainian commanders says that at least one brigade was so badly debilitated from casualties that it was literally withdrawn from the battlefield to rebuild. Now, obviously, Ukraine does not report on Ukrainian casualties, and they keep that confidential, but that's a pretty big bit of news that a brigade was that badly debilitated. So the article goes a bit into the heavy casualties that Ukraine has taken back in June, the minefields, talked about that a lot, the Russian artillery, and even the airstrikes. They've obviously been using Russian helicopters. We've talked about that in a previous episode as well. One of the things that also came out from that article is that the Ukrainian troops, many of them are draftees, and many of them have never fought before. And so these, I guess, you know, new raw recruits are given very little training, about eight weeks and I think that's something that, as I've talked about the advantage that Ukraine would have, they obviously are fighting for their land. But let's be realistic, eight weeks is not a lot of training for someone to go into war. So some of these units have newer soldiers than I think the West initially appreciated or some of the analysts. There are still lots of veterans who are seated in these units, but some of these veterans are you know, to, to put it nicely, or somewhat worn down by a year of, of heavy fighting. So I think some of these units are a little bit more raw and a little bit less tested than initially thought. So that's led to some hesitation, clearly. The article does go on to talk about how they are probing forward, using reconnaissance and, and stalking forward a lot more. And we've talked about that a lot as well, to minimize losses even with all of that, you know, pessimism and negativity, the leaders of this Marine Ukrainian brigade say a couple of times they have found seams where they have been able to 
push forward and split Russian forces. And one of the final quotes in the article is that um, one of the Marine leaders for Ukraine says, bit by bit, we will find a place where the seam will split open. And then he, he uses this analogy that water cuts through stone and will do the same bit by bit. At first it is a small stream and then it turns into a river. So this somewhat goes a bit against the initial article that I mentioned in that I don't know that if you read this article in depth, it doesn't seem like Ukraine's trying to take its time moving forward. It's just it's very challenging and they've taken heavy losses and they just aren't able to do these massive attacks. So wanted to share that piece from the New York Times because that definitely had some insights that I hadn't seen anywhere else. And again, you can read that from the link in the Substack episode notes. Okay, before I talk about this third article, this is going to be a little bit of a um, challenging thing to hear. And so I just want to go ahead and brief you that the following this, there will be more good news. But I definitely, I always want to be straight up with you guys, and I definitely needed to share what I'm seeing out there. And so this more difficult thing that I wanted to share comes from CNN. And the headline is, Western allies receive increasingly, quote, sobering, end quote, updates on Ukraine's counteroffensive. And they're calling it the most difficult time of the war. just want to read a couple of things from this article of CNN. I've got a link in the Substack notes. We, here's the beginning. Weeks into Ukraine's highly anticipated counteroffensive, Western officials describe increasingly sober assessments about Ukrainian forces' ability to retake significant territory for, and this is according to four senior U.S. and Western officials briefed on the latest intelligence who spoke to CNN, obviously on the condition of anonymity. Now, one of them said, They're still going to see for the next couple of weeks if there is a chance of making some progress. But for them to really make progress that would change the balance of this conflict, I think it's extremely highly unlikely. That's according to a senior Western diplomat. Now, on the record, a congressman from Illinois, a a Democrat by the name of uh, Congressman Mike Quigley, he said... Quote, our briefings are sobering. We're reminded of the challenges they face, they being Ukraine. This is the most difficult time of the war. Now, another Western official in that same article, this is a Western diplomat, so one would assume it was someone from the State Department. This off-the-record quote is just, just freaking tough to hear, but I'll read it. Russians have a number of defensive lines, and the Ukrainian forces haven't really gone through the first line. Even if they would keep on fighting for the next several weeks, if they haven't been able to make more breakthroughs throughout these last seven or eight weeks, what is the likelihood that they will suddenly, with more depleted forces, make them? Because the conditions are so hard. That one's a tough one to read, and, you know, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that. But I definitely did want to... Mention this article. They do try at the end of the article to say that there's still a chance that, you know, Russian forces could break, etc. But that is the tough news article that I did feel I needed to share in this episode. Alright, so clearly that was kind of hard to hear. So let's share some of the positive news that's out there that's happening and that is all very real and that has to have our good friend in Russia, Vladimir Putin. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. A little bit worried. The first thing I wanted to share comes from two days ago. The United Kingdom's uh, intelligence service released that the Russian Air Force has been struggling. We've talked about how the helicopters have been, as, as well as their jets, have been doing a pretty good number on the Ukrainians. And they've been averaging about 100 sorties a day through June and July, restricted to operating over Russian-controlled territory because there is, you know, the Ukrainian air defenses are pretty good, and they've been using these basic free-fall bombs with range-extending glide attachments. So they're launching them from Russian territory, many kilometers from their targets, and not the best accuracy. And then there's also been some helicopters that have used anti-tank missiles. Those have been more successful but you will see from time to time that Ukraine has been shooting down a few more of those. 
So the, the United Kingdom's intelligence service said that at the start of this counteroffensive in the south in June that the Russian attack helicopters had proved effective. And in fact, Russia had moved a few more down there. If you remember a couple of months ago, I discussed that with you guys. But it did say that in recent weeks, Russia has been able to generate much less effective tactical air power in the south. So there's the first bit of good news that I wanted to share from the Ukrainian perspective. The second bit of good news is that Ukraine has continued to hit one of those bridges from Crimea that connects to Ukraine that is increasingly, we've talked in previous weeks, they've hit the bridge a couple of times in the past, they are increasingly getting closer to completely knocking it out of service, and that is, as I said, I think it was last week, that is increasing the amount of time that it takes for Russia to move supplies to their troops. So they're starting to strangle Russian forces that are north of the Dnipro River. Also, the third bit of thing, and this is even bigger news, Ukraine managed to severely damage a Russian vessel. And in fact, they hit it so bad with one of these sea drones, which are, you know, basically a robotic um, remote control ship, unmanned, obviously, that it was literally listing 30 to 40 degrees. So several watertight compartments were certainly breached, and there was definitely a major leak. And the ship that they managed to severely damaged was actually the largest Russian Navy naval vessel that's been seriously damaged or destroyed since the sinking of the cruiser Moskva. We talked about that last year in April of 2022. So Ukraine has damaged the largest ship since that time. And this is a huge, just, it was really hurt Russia, because this ship that was one of their, you know, larger ones that they used for supplies, it was used to uh, ferry military and civilian traffic between Russia and Crimea when the Kerch Bridge was disrupted. It could carry a lot of military equipment and supplies. In fact, it's a 3,600 ton ship, 113 meters long, it's almost 300 feet long. It's a big ship. I'll uh, I'll throw links in so that you can see videos of how bad the thing was leaning, but. That was a pretty big deal. And then as if all that wasn't enough, Ukraine also managed to damage a commercial ship that was being used by Russia to supply forces between Syria and Russian-occupied Ukraine. That was another huge blow to the Russian Navy. Again, Russia is struggling to defend these large open areas on the water against these small unmanned Ukrainian ships. So if you're Vladimir Putin right now, you've got to be starting to get a little nervous about supplying all of your forces because these bridges are increasingly being attacked and your navy cannot defend itself against these sophisticated attacks that the Ukrainians are pulling off. So that is the two real big pieces or three big pieces of good news for Ukraine. And of course, as the first, as said regarding that first article, I think Ukraine is wearing down the Russians. It's just a matter of how much time do they have before the rains come and before winter comes. So there's still a lot up in there. I'm still very optimistic. I've been optimistic from the beginning, but I do always want to balance my optimism with the facts that I'm seeing and hearing out there in articles. Now, the final thing I wanted to share before we move away from the news about Ukraine is let's just look at the situation from a strategic perspective. And just the outstanding columnist for the Washington Post, David Ignatius, I'm a pretty big fan of his to say the least, I've been reading his stuff. And actually in this very column himself, he quotes an article he wrote almost a year ago about how Ukraine's defense was to try to make itself into a porcupine so that Russia could not ingest it or basically swallow it whole. And so he quoted parts that he was absolutely right about then. He has great sources in the military. He has great sources in the intelligence service, such as the CIA. And he has great sources in the State Department because he's been doing this for 30 years. But he wrote a great column that I just wanted to mention a couple portions from because I think he does a great job allowing you to see this from a strategic perspective from Russia's side. So let me just get right into it. 
Ignatius writes that Putin must contend with what he calls the three P's, which is the first one, a propaganda battle that he's losing. The second one is a partisan warfare campaign that Russia is, of the lands it's taken inside Ukraine, that he's dealing with partisan activity, which is obviously guerrilla warfare mostly. And then finally, the, the third P is a political fragmentation that's happening inside Russia. And then Ignatius runs through each of these P's. On the propaganda front, he mentions a recent global um, summit that had happened where folks from even as far away as Brazil, India, South America, Turkey met this past weekend in Saudi Arabia. They heard a Ukrainian officials outline a peace proposal that centers on the full withdrawal of Russian forces. And there was even a uh, Chinese representative that attended the gathering. And the Russians were not happy that that is something that most of the world is on the same page of, which is that Ukraine or that Russia needs to fully withdraw from Ukraine. So Vladimir Putin and Russia, they're losing the propaganda war. That's clear to anyone who's kept up with this at all, except for maybe on certain conservative outlets. Pretty much anywhere in the world, everyone knows Russia launched this illegal invasion. Everyone knows about the war crimes. Vladimir Putin has not helped the Russian brand with this invasion at all. So on the propaganda front, not looking good for the Russians. Then uh, Ignatius runs through some of the partisan warfare that's happening, which is the second P. Talks about in the Zaporizhia region, which is where one of the major pushes are happening from Ukraine, or trying attempted pushes, I should say, as a part of the counteroffensive. But he talks about that there was an IED attack in February. There were car bombs in January. More car, one car bomb in March. There was a bombing in April. Two car bombs, a blown railway, and a sniper attack in June. So these seem to be picking up in the Zaporizhia region that Russia is currently occupying. Also in Crimea, he he lines or lays out a list of attacks, including a gas pipeline that was attacked in March, railway lines in May, uh, in June, and an ammunition dump that was hit in July. And he talks about how Russians are really trying to clamp down on these by literally taking kids and putting them on trains to you know re-educate them, but that what is happening is that there are a generation of Ukrainians just learning to hate Russians, both across Ukraine, where they've dealt with these constant attacks on civilian infrastructure, but also in these occupied regions. And in fact, one thing he doesn't mention that it makes me sick every time I read it, but Russia has been forcing Ukrainian men in these occupied areas to be drafted and take up arms against basically their brothers. And so that's a real sad situation that happens. These soldiers try their best to surrender when they can, but unfortunately that's not easy to do when sometimes Russian forces will force their soldiers to fight and or fire on them if they do not or if they attempt to surrender. But I'm digressing just a tad on that. The column ends by saying that we've talked a lot about how Putin thinks he can wait out the West, and the column ends by saying waiting us out may be a bad bet on Russia's part, and Ignatius ends by saying he thinks he's right because Western support continues with new equipment, and so this is kind of, this column lines up with a lot we've already talked about in this podcast. At any rate, I hope all this news has helped maybe inform you a bit more than you were before you started listening to it. And we're going to wrap up all the news about Ukraine with that. I want to remind you, after this break, we're going to talk about the China incident involving the Philippines. And then we'll go into the discussion of U.S. military news. And as always, end with the motivation and wisdom at the end. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to and would like to help support the show, you can do so by signing up as a monthly paying subscriber. For $5 per month, you can help us sustain, grow, and improve the show. There are so many things I'd like to do to improve the podcast and my outreach, but these things take time and resources. As you can probably tell, I truly do believe in trying to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world 
unite our country, and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America and share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode. Again, you can help support the show for only $5 per month. Come and go as you wish. You can find all the details on my Substack page. That's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or just find it in the episode notes. Thanks so much, guys. Let's move to China, but we're going to keep this real brief. This is something that I could probably put up almost any week, but there was another incident this week where China was trying to bully and intimidate its neighbors. I've got a link in the Substack notes. There's a ship that's a Chinese naval ship that has an incident with the Philippine uh, Navy. They're spraying water toward a ship, and they're basically just trying to maneuver this ship away from where what is basically the disputed South China Sea. Now, the Philippines claims this area. Obviously, China has increasingly been saying that this is Chinese area. But the only reason I bring this up, and you can go look at the link if you want, but, you know, a lot of times you'll hear Americans say that the increasing friction between China and the U.S. is, you know, the U.S. should just mind its own business and stay away. But the reality is, is that this is more about China trying to bully and intimidate its neighbors. And the U.S. is essentially helping build a coalition of countries that want us there to try to essentially essentially neutralize a much larger country that on its own could easily bully and intimidate these countries such as Taiwan, Philippines, and there's a bunch of others there. And there are constantly small economic and, and military-like small little, I guess, bullying moves that China makes on an almost weekly basis. And so the reason that there's this increasing national and international coalition being built up is that the world wants to prevent lots of confrontations and skirmishes and wars, and they want to keep up major international trade routes. So that's what's happening. So when you hear your friends mentioned something about what the U.S. is doing or China just remind them that it isn't just the U.S. There are a lot of countries over there that are begging us to get more involved, to position more U.S. forces there so that China makes the right decision and doesn't get too greedy on what its future plans are. And so that's I've made that argument before, but I again want to make it because it just so happened that this week there's video evidence of what China is doing. It's happening. They're making these man-made islands. They're trying to intimidate Taiwan. All of these things are happening, and there's a reason these smaller countries are inviting in, including Vietnam, by the way. We've talked about the military bases being built there by the U.S. These countries want us there because they know they have interacted with America for decades, and they have interacted with China, and they know who the good guys really are. So there you go. Definitely wanted to get that in. Take a look at the video if you want, and let's move away from that to something that's much more important, at least in the short term. And that's several pieces of military news about American forces that you really do need to hear about. As you guys know, every week I like to highlight some military units or some photos that I've found from the Department of Defense, but this week's going to be a little bit different because there are three news stories that I wanted to cover involving the U.S. military, all three of which I think are pretty important, and so we're going to skip highlighting some photos or, you know, typical units that are stationed around the world, and we're going to discuss three news things involving the U.S. military that I think it's important to share. Now, the first one involves, there has been a I guess a deployment or redirection of a deployed unit. And this involves some news that we covered a few weeks ago. And the news of that's happened is that the U.S. is moving some ships toward Iran. And so we talked a few weeks ago about how Iran attempted to seize two commercial vessels. And they were 
thankfully prevented from doing so, but U.S. forces in the area have been pretty spread out, and it did take an hour plus or so before U.S. forces could get on the scene with one of those attempted interdictions by Iran. And so, as a response from that, the U.S. has moved two ships into the area. They're moving them into the Strait of Hormuz. That is a strait that connects the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. It's one of the most important strategically important choke points in the world actually and so there's a ton of just oil that comes from the Middle East through that area and as we talked about a few weeks ago every now and then Iran gets a little aggressive is a nice way of saying it I guess and they attempt things and so the U.S. has positioned two ships there they are moving the USS Baton and the USS Carter uh, Carter Hall correction sorry about that so the USS Baton is actually an amphibious landing ship. That's exactly the same ship I was on back in 97, so I'm very familiar with them. They carry almost a battalion worth of Marines, which is about six to 800 Marines. They include everything from aircraft to um, pilot those Marines places. They also have, obviously, uh, amphibious landing craft, and they have the... Uh, Harriers on top, so this is going to add a lot of firepower. The other one is a uh, dock landing ship, and so these these ships would be able to move Marines around easily. But more than anything, having their you know they have the Harriers, they also have the uh, attack helicopters on them. So it really they're basically like it's a a smaller size aircraft carrier essentially, and so there's a lot of firepower on these. Uh, ships, especially that uh, landing assault, amphibious assault ship. So that's a, that's a lot of Marines and sailors in the area, and that should help, hopefully, keep Iran in check. Uh, there's a news article. You can read the link if you would like. It basically goes over what we talked about a few weeks ago, what happened when they attempted to seize a couple of ships and how the USS McFall helped prevent that. We covered that, so I don't think I need to recover that, guys, or recover that for you guys. But again, keep your thoughts and prayers on these uh, men and women who've been deployed over there. Hopefully the additional presence of U.S. personnel will help calm things down. And the news about this deployment did emphasize that this isn't just a U.S. operation. It will involve allies in the area. They're just trying to keep this choke point from being locked down by Iran. So we want to keep the Persian Gulf open we want to keep oil prices somewhat reasonable so keep those folks in your thoughts and prayers second news item i wanted to cover in this section involves a very similar situation same area straight of hormuz i wanted to give first a, a shout out to a gentleman who reached out to me about this as kind of a news tip that he had seen i hadn't seen it yet hopefully i would have seen it but it was kind of a buried story but i definitely wanted to give him props he goes by the alias online of jab jab so but he sent a uh, a link to this i checked it out uh, and i'm actually giving you a gift article link in the Washington Post. You can read this if you want, but there is a move now in the Biden administration to consider putting U.S. Marines on commercial ships in the same area in the Persian Gulf slash Strait of uh, Hormuz to help protect them. Now, this Strait of Hormuz is almost 21 miles wide, and it's, you know, it's very long. So, it's a lot of area, even though we're using drones, even though we're using satellite imagery, it's just a lot of area to protect, and as you can guess, since most of the world's oil comes from the Persian Gulf, there are a lot of ships moving. And so the Biden administration is considering a proposal to literally put U.S. Marines on some of these commercial ships if the interested private companies agree to do so. So it, these are privately owned ships. They're not U.S. ships. They're from all around the world, actually. And so if they were to agree to the proposal, and assuming this was approved, then U.S. Marines would be placed on these ships, and obviously they would have small arms to help protect them from some type of you know, Iranian seizure. So, again, hasn't received final approval. You can read the article. There's a lots of quotes in the article with lots of people not wanting to comment on the article. I think this is something they've, uh, you know, been 
considering for a bit, and probably they weren't ready for this to make the news yet, but I do want to try to keep everyone informed when news happens, especially I know there are parents out there that this could infect your uh, son or daughter. So again, you can read the gift, the gift article link from the source notes if you want to read about the potential for putting Marines on commercial ships. Um, pretty unique idea, and according to the article, it looks like it'll probably happen. Hasn't been confirmed yet on when it's going to happen, but it does appear that the Pentagon and some of the senior officials in the Biden administration support the idea. And the third and final thing I wanted to make sure that I did talk with you guys about or inform you guys of is the kind of a bit of a big deal thing happened between the U.S. and Iraq the past week. The Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited Iraq and what what our government in Iraq has been working on is a joint security cooperation type of agreement. Now, there are U.S. forces in Iraq still that are advising Iraqi troops as they continue to fight ISIS. And there were a few news points that I wanted to bring up from this uh, recent news item from the Department of Defense, which they've openly reported on this meeting between the Secretary of Defense and they're talking about what they want to do. And they even issued a uh, joint statement with Iraq afterward. The gist of the meeting is that since ISIS, the caliphate, was defeated in 2019, there have been some attempts to, you know, for that group to regrow. Obviously, that's the way any large organization does is when you when you militarily defeat an armed group, it becomes an insurgency. It starts practicing guerrilla warfare. The article said, and I hadn't seen this, so this was worth kind of putting in the podcast as well, that the U.S. currently estimates there's about a thousand ISIS adherents in Iraq and about a thousand in Syria. Now, you know, as you guys know, about once every month or two, I will talk about some of the raids that we have done in Iraq or Syria. Sometimes they make the news, sometimes they don't. Of course, we've talked about how Russia has been interfering some of our operations over there, flying over troops, interfering with our drones. But I hadn't seen numbers in a while, so the Pentagon's saying there's a thousand ISIS fighters still in Iraq, and there's about a thousand in Syria. Now, obviously, the Operation to destroy ISIS, which has mostly happened, was a pretty big success. It was multiple administrations going back to Obama, to Trump. Obviously, the Biden administration has been continuing to try to deal with this insurgency. So the announcement of the meeting between Iraq and the Department of Defense just talked about that the U.S. is you know, agreeing that Iraq will continue to lead the operations, obviously. The other thing that the U.S. definitely brought up, and this is really smart politically, because we all know that Iran has been trying really hard to work its influence in Iraq. The U.S. again reaffirmed that U.S. forces are in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government and that they are only there to support the Iraqi security forces as those forces fight ISIS and the... Um, Government of Iraq at the same time, it reaffirmed its commitment that it would protect U.S. and global coalition personnel and advisors, as well as convoys and diplomatic facilities. So it's always important to make sure everyone's on the same page of that. And they they did set up future meetings, not only to discuss the threat from ISIS, but also uh, current and future operational requirements and efforts to improve the capabilities of the Iraqi security forces. Now, I haven't talked Iraq politics in a while, in a while, but Iraq is interesting because once Saddam Hussein was removed, he was a member of the Ba'ath Party. The unfortunately, from a U.S. standpoint or a Western standpoint, Iraq has a majority of Shia over the Sunni. Now, Sunnis are obviously the religious sect that you primarily find in Saudi Arabia. Shia are the large religious sect that's primarily made up in Iran. So when we helped, or when we invaded Iraq, and we essentially set up a democracy, once it became a democracy, there was a majority of Shia. 
And for a while, Iraq was pretty hard aligning itself with Iran. And so that was a threat to Saudi Arabia. I don't think the U.S. was super happy about that. But at the same time, I think Iran the past few years has overplayed its hand. It has tried to manipulate and control Iraq. And so I think these meetings are a real bullet point that Iraq is increasingly saying, hey, look, we need to be our own country. We can have ties to Iran. We can have ties to the U.S., but we are Iraq, and we don't have to do what either country says. We have our own interest, and we will look out for ourselves. So I did want to mention that meeting, and if I see more as reporting comes out in the coming days, I'll, I'll do a quick update next week. And with all of that being said, let's get to the motivation and wisdom section. We're going to begin the motivation and wisdom section with a little pep talk because someone out there needs to hear this. I know someone out there needs to hear this. Listen, life is passing you by. You only get one shot at life and you're letting it slip through your fingers day by day. Life has beaten you down, kicked you in the face, ignored you, punished you, rained on you, assailed you with illnesses and injuries, burden you with debts and levels of despair that I know are breaking your spirit. But you have to get up. Do you hear me? You have to get up. And you're going to start fighting back. Do not let despair win. Get up and take a step forward to confront these things facing you right now. Do it now. And let the following items that I'm going to share lift your spirit and take you to a higher level. You can do this. You're meant to do this. And you have to do this for yourself, for your family, for your creator. And with all of that being said, I truly hope these help pick up your spirits, that they help revive your hopes, and that they help make you a better person. I hope that pep talk helped motivate you and wake you up. I once read, if you don't think you're powerful, think of your most important relationship of that person who's depending on you. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's a parent you're caring for. Maybe it's your spouse. If you don't think you're important, if you think you don't matter, imagine if you suddenly went away. Who would care for that person? Who would check on them, love them, care for them, help them? We are all way more powerful and important than we think. And the work we do, even that work we forget about and sometimes complain about, it's important. You can have an impact. You are having an impact. And now that you're paying attention, let's share a few more items to help feed you and make you stronger. Here is the first one. Success is measured by the size of your belief. Think small goals and expect small achievements. Think big goals and win big success. That's a great one, isn't it? Again, success is measured by the size of your belief. Think small goals and expect small achievements. Think big goals and win big success. Got to be thinking big, right? Next one. Make it happen. Shock everyone. Again, make it happen. Shock everyone. I know speaking for myself, sometimes people who did not believe in you, they provide as much fuel or fire as anyone. Do they not? Next one. Keep on being you. Keep on doing those beautiful, impactful, honest things that you do. Out here in this crazy world, we need more people like you. Another beautiful one. Again, keep on being you. Keep on doing those beautiful, impactful, honest things that you do. Out here in this crazy world, we need more people like you. Next one. Everything you do and every decision you make should be from a good place. You should always be striving to make the world a better place. Next one. Success doesn't just come. Most times, it has to be forced. Oh, that's a great one. Again, success doesn't just come. Most times, it has to be forced. Next one. Decide. Commit succeed. It's another good one. Again, that one was decide, commit, succeed. 
Next one, learn to trust the journey, even when you do not understand it. Again, learn to trust the journey, even when you do not understand it. Now, this next one is just absolutely an incredible one by the uh, author uh, Roald Dahl. And the, uh, and the author quote is, I began to realize how important it was to be an enthusiast in life. If you are interested in something, no matter what it is, go at it full speed. Embrace it with both arms. Hug it. Love it. And above all, become passionate about it. Lukewarm is no good. Man, that's a good one, isn't it? I began to realize how important it was to be an enthusiast in life. If you are interested in something, no matter what it is, go at it full speed. Embrace it with both arms. Hug it. Love it. And above all, become passionate about it. Lukewarm is no good. Man, that's a great one. So much truth to that one. Next one. Stay prepared. Opportunities are coming. Again, stay prepared. Opportunities are coming. It is so hard to be patient in this world, is it not? Everything is instant and apps and internet and you can order it and overnight delivery and prime delivery. Everything comes so fast, but that is not how the real world really works on the big things that we're chasing. Again, that quote is, stay prepared, opportunities are coming, and I'm adding the word, be patient. Next one, and this one is just a great one. Be the person you look up to. Man, that's good, is it not? Be the person you look up to. I have so many role models that I try to somewhat be like, but man, that is just, there's so much wisdom in that. Be the person you look up to. Next one. Trying times are not the times to stop trying. Another great one. Trying times are not the times to stop trying. Next one. What's happening in your life is a result of what's happening in your mind. Again, what's happening in your life is a result of what's happening in your mind. we got to be mentally strong, do we not? Next one. I'd rather be a failure in something that I love than a success in something that I hate. Ooh, that one kind of hits all of us, doesn't it? Got those day jobs, we need those checks, but doesn't mean we can't be pursuing some things on the side. Maybe at night, maybe waking up a little early. I know that's my, my secret, and I try to work some during lunch. So I'm not saying jump in the deep end and just quit your job. We all got to have those day jobs until the dream takes off, but man, just something to think about, isn't it? I'd rather be a failure in something that I love than a success in something that I hate. Next one. Everyone has ideas. Success is all about execution. Dang, that is another just great one, is it not? Everyone has ideas. Success is all about execution. We know so many people. I know we all know people. They talk the talk. They don't walk the walk. They will not pay the dues. They will not practice. They will not grind it out when it ain't fun no more. There's, man, there's just so much of that quote. Everyone has ideas. Success is all about execution. That is just so, so good. It reminds me of a quote I once heard in a uh, book, which I can't recall the book off the top of my head, but it said that um, the difference in a hobby and becoming a professional is that a professional plays hurt. You write when you don't want to. You you know, you don't just do it when you're inspired once a week or once a month or you have this idea. You write every day, even when you don't want to, even when you're not enjoying the story because you know you're a professional. That's what professionals do. Same thing with your day job. You go to work when you're sick or when you don't want to. Whatever your dream is, you got to be that way with it. Again, the quote was, everyone has ideas. Success is all about execution. Man, that is such a good one. As you guys know, I like to do a couple from the Bible. Here's the first one. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. That's from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Again, God has said, Never will I leave you. 
never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Here's the next one. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They exult in your righteousness. That's from Psalms chapter 89, verses 15 and 16. I'll read it one more time. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They exult in your righteousness. A couple of good ones there. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a good one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. So many men and women have sacrificed, fought, and died to keep this country together the past 240 years. Please work daily to unite our country again. The vast majority of Americans are decent, loving, great people. Also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. For those who are listening for the first time, let me say a bit more about myself and the podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior infantry Marine who dropped the sword and picked up the pen. After joining the Marine Corps at the age of 17 to serve four years in the infantry, I exited military service, earned a degree, and spent 10-plus years in the news business, initially as a reporter, but then going on to start a weekly newspaper in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013. But once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 12 books, and while it's true I'm still writing, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think that much can be gained from discussing these issues and creating a community where we intelligently discuss the troubles confronting us and where we work to come closer together and respect each other's views with more patience and kindness. A house divided cannot stand, and I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. I will not remain silent while politicians, seeking their own personal gain, try to throw gas on a dangerous fire, doing their best to tear apart this country so that they can advance to a higher office. We face great challenges as a country, but America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. So let's get a little better informed, and let's work to get a little more united as a people. Thank you for being patient and allowing me to share that monologue. I think it's important people hear what I'm about, and I think it's also important my regular listeners hear this message enough that it sinks in, that it affects what they believe, that it affects how they act. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today, beliefs such as kindness, patience and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Thanks again for your patience and for listening. I know it's not the sort of fast-paced, really hip, Twitter-friendly, TikTok-cool message that fits most podcasts that go viral, but maybe we've got a few too many podcasts that are like that. Maybe we need to go back to something deeper, to something firmer and more solid to something we can build a foundation from, and that's what I'm offering. Now, we're almost to the end of the show, and I'd be a fool not to mention my books. I write fast-paced books, and when I say fast-paced, I mean like really fast-paced books. And if you read the reviews, people say they are gripping, compelling, and full of twists and turns. I've written a dozen books to date, and I've been fortunate to have sold more than 70,000 copies. And guys, these are independently published. There isn't some big company pushing these. These are straight up word of mouth sales. So if you're one of those who've bought a, a book or more than one book, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. If you're one of those folks who've just shared links or told others about me, 
It's a great way to support the show. All of my books can be found on Amazon, and they are primarily about military thrillers. I've got a series about a Marine Corps sniper. I've got some police detective ones, but you can find all of them on Amazon just by searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell. Make sure you include the R. You will find them no problem. You will see they all have averages of more than four, uh, four plus stars and thousands of reviews on them. So they're great gifts. They're also great for yourself if you're interested in them. So thanks so much, guys, for sticking it out with me. I hope you got something from the show, and I look forward to seeing you guys here, same time, same place, next Thursday.